Welcome to The Lead Candidate, the podcast where we aim to understand what makes a great leader in science. I'm your host, Dr. Simona Carboni. In science, we are taught how to become great researchers and brilliant scientists become leaders in their field. But this doesn't automatically make a leader of people. So what are the differences between those who fall into the role versus those who were made for it? On The Lead Candidate, I will interview people in different positions of leadership to find out. So in this first episode of The Lead Candidate, my guest today is Associate Professor Sebastian, aka Baz King. Thank you for joining me on this very first episode. It's lovely to be here, Sim. (laughs) Uh, So Baz is an academic paediatric surgeon at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. He is the Director of the Colorectal and Pelvic Reconstruction Service at the Royal Children's Hospital and co-leader of the Surgical Research Group at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Um, and he's also a mate of mine, so I'm, I'm very grateful that he's my uh, first interviewee for this um, podcast series. So, Baz, before we get started, could you please describe a bit about your role as a clinician and how research is a part of what you do? Sure. Um, so I'm a paediatric colorectal surgeon, um, and that's a very subspecialised group. There really aren't that many of us uh, in Australia who would describe ourselves like that and, and not that many around the world either. And so I trained as a paediatric surgeon, um, so went through adult general surgery and then into paediatric surgery and trained um, in uh, uh, New South Wales and in Victoria and then over in and New Zealand before coming back to Victoria and then eventually went to uh, Toronto, Canada as well and then came back to the Royal Children's Hospital as a paediatric surgeon with a particular subspecialty interest in colorectal conditions and from there um, have continued to develop that interest and subspecialty um, and so now predominantly look after children born with congenital colorectal conditions so things like Hirschsprung's disease or anorectal malformations, babies born without bottoms, um, as well as looking after a large collection of children with uh, chronic constipation that requires surgical management. And my path into paediatric colorectal surgery um, really came about because I did a PhD at the Children's Hospital many years ago um, uh, that focused on those children with chronic constipation and the surgical management that they required. Yeah, your nickname is the Bum Doctor, the Bum uh, by Annabelle Crabb and Lee Sales, which I do quite enjoy. So it sounds like it's a bit crude, but um, the impact that you have on these young kids' lives is truly, it's huge. So it's um, really amazing to see you with patients, um, the little bit that I have. So I feel very lucky to call you a colleague and a friend. Um, So the opening section for this podcast series is I want to start with getting to know what kind of leader you are and I'm going to start this series with the same first question which is were you born a leader or did you become one over the course of your career? I think that I probably had some leadership characteristics. Um, I don't know if I, I, I can clearly remember at school realising for the first time that other people saw me as a leader, um, and that was at primary school, really, uh, that people were looking to me to do things, be that at a sporting level or at a music, uh, the, the music that I did. Um, and then that probably followed through into 
high school with, again, various aspects of, of the work that I, you know, the, the stuff that I did with sport and, again, music. But I think that as I've gone along, obviously, you'd hope that your ability to lead improves. And what I've found is that I have really benefited from surrounding myself and, and actively surrounding myself with excellent leaders that I can look up to and learn from. Yeah. And I think that that probably initially did that instinctively, but as I've gone further through my career, probably been a little bit more proactive about that um, that approach um, and seeing what I can learn from um, all different styles of leaders in different situations. I think that's really important, particularly when you look at your role, which is um, has so many different aspects to it. I can imagine that you'd need different types of leaders in different situations to learn from. Um, you work with, well, you've got your research staff, you've got your theatre teams, you've got admin staff, um, but then you even have the patients themselves. So I imagine each of those groups would require different uh, sorts of leadership styles. Is that something that you con- uh, consciously change to meet their needs or is that are you just the same person in all those situations? Probably to a degree instinctively but also to a degree proactively change my leadership style based on the situation in which I find myself. And so um, the, the, if we take the situation of um, being in theatre, for example, I think that my position as the surgeon in that environment brings with it a degree of leadership um, heft. But there are different ways that that can be used um, and I think that it can be used far more effectively by not impressing that upon people but by allowing that um, situation to unfold. People are aware, the team around you are aware of the process that you've gone through to get to that point. And so there is, there's a respect, I suppose, that comes with the work that's got you to that, um, that situation. But that can be very quickly undone by poor behaviour. You need to, and I certainly would like to think that I make sure that I take that position, treat it with the respect that it deserves, um, but also, more importantly, treat the people around me as colleagues and collaborators so that recognising that everybody uh, in that room, be it from the, you know, the surgical team, the nursing team, the anaesthetic team, through to um, the very important people that place the patients on the bed and clean the, the, um, the theatres between cases, all of us have a part to play and um, we can't do that job we can't do our jobs effectively without all of us working together. Yeah, I think that that's really clear at the moment. In the you know, we're, here we are in uh, October of um, 2020, where the absolute paramount importance of the cleaning staff at a hospital. Yeah, um, they're, they're far more important than than I am at the moment. It's yeah. true. It's in true. And they're probably working uh, many more hours. Yeah, at the moment as well. Yeah, they are, and they're, and they're working under um, significant stress and, you know, with um, uh, the situation changing on a daily basis and sometimes, you know, during the day. And so um, I think recognising that all of us have a role to play um, and that leadership comes from 
recognising that and celebrating um, that each of us is working towards a common goal. I think that's a wonderful attitude to have um, and it really highlights your leadership quality, I think, in that, you know, you're a part of a team um, and that everyone's in that team together because that's not necessarily a trait that all surgeons that I've come across have and egos can sometimes be um, a bit more part of it and I guess it's got to do with you're doing really life-saving, risky work no matter what type of um, operation um, you're a part of. Maybe do you think that helps with um, like a game day type situation? Well, I think that I feel incredibly privileged to do the work that I do. But it's interesting when you talk about ego um, and and certainly the surgical ego, you, you have to have a degree of ego to be able to do the work that we do mm. um, because, you know, people do look to you to make the decisions and to move the operation forward and, and to yeah. take ownership and really take ownership. And, and, you know, all surgeons have complications and the ability to deal with those complications um, is really it's a key component of being a good surgeon, I think, because all of us have to deal with that and how you respond to that is also a sign of how you lead. I've, I've worked with some surgeons who um, the complication is seen to be everybody else's fault and, <laughs> and that immediately um, impacts on the morale of the team around you. I think that you need to lead by example um, in that situation. But if I think about probably the two most impressive surgical leaders I've ever worked with and who are um, they were my trainers. They are now my um, dear friends and mentors. Um, and they both live, you know, one lives you know, in France, one lives in New Zealand. Um, but these were two, these, these two men um, are two of the most comfortable people in their own skin, but they exude leadership. They exude presence. They have a great strength of ego, but they also have a humility with it. And I think that um, people mix up that a large ego means that you know, sort of bombastic, et cetera. Yeah. But, you know, both of these remarkable men have a great strength of ego but also, um, but also have great humility and humour and, and um, see that everybody, again, in their team um, plays a critical role. That's wonderful to hear. Um, one of the things that really you championed and I think I think it would be fair to say that you're quite proud of in your work is that you founded the colorectal and pelvis reconstruction service at the Royal Children's Hospital. And I really like when you read on the, um, the hospital webpage for the service um, the way that the purpose is written out and I've just, I'll quote it basically verbatim because it's written so well. It's that you're wanting the services leading the way in complex colorectal and pelvic care in Australia. We aim to deliver the highest quality clinical care to children and families with complex colorectal and pelvic conditions. We play a vital role in increasing awareness, understanding and knowledge of the conditions in the community and work collaboratively to educate healthcare professionals. And there's a whole page about your mission statement and reading through it, it's, it's so well written and even talking to you, you can see that you really clearly thought about this and it's something that you're very passionate about. Is it fair to say that this service has really been part of the cornerstone of your leadership? Yeah, I think so. I, I've, this is a you know this is a very exciting um, 
Yeah, it's been a very exciting five years setting this service up uh, since I returned from overseas, you know, where my fellowship was. And what I saw here, but also what I saw overseas, was that, that these children, particularly with colorectal conditions, they they just deserve not better care because they've all, you know, the, the children's hospital has had a world class reputation for managing Hirschsprung's disease and anorectal malformations and chronic constipation for a very long time. But these are conditions that that are hidden, mm. um, and so I felt very passionate about being able to champion and advocate for these children and their families and and using the position that I have and the reputation of the children's hospital and being able to leverage that successfully to be able to say that these are conditions that are important yeah. for these families. They are lifelong and and they have the potential to have significant psychological and, and social impacts on the not only on the children but on the, on the on the whole family and so I really I thought that it was important to champion their cause because these are conditions that people don't want to talk about yeah. and they feel awkward about them yeah. and and therefore there were there were many children who were suffering silently and I thought that we had the opportunity both through the Children's and through the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, where our research is run through, and through the University of Melbourne as well, to be able to use all of those components together to be able to to increase that awareness and improve the care for these these families. Yeah, because advocacy, I guess, is a different kind of leadership again, right? You've got people think of leadership in terms of leading a team and leading people, but in advocacy, you're leading people that you don't necessarily know. I mean, I guess in your case, you do know a lot of them because many of them are your patients, but you're championing championing a cause really. Do you find that you need different qualities when you're in that advocacy role? What's that experience been like for you? Is it different for you? Yeah, I suppose it, it, it is a bit different because you're right in that when I when I'm you know if you're in theatre or you're in the clinic, you're looking after that one patient and their family, and that's the beauty of paediatrics is that you really are looking after the family unit. It's one of the it's one of the things that I really love about the work that I do is getting to know not only the child but really getting to know the family before you know the child because mm-hmm. the, you know, most of our children are, are neonates um, that we look after, but then we look after them for a long period of time. But you are, it's that one-on-one interaction, but recognising that you, you could come to the end of your career um, as a surgeon and look, having looked after th- you know, potentially thousands of patients like that, but you only having that, that impact on that one-to-one um, situation and there are many many surgeons where that is you know more than enough for them mm. but I suppose part of the, the reason why I love doing the research that I do but also why I like the advocacy work is that it's really having the the larger impact and that's not just for the children that come through our service but it's through the for all of the children across Australia Australasia and internationally that we have the opportunity to enhance their care and to come back to your question about leadership I do think you know, I'm using different aspects, I think, of, of my leadership style there because there's less, I suppose, the language that I use has to change. Yeah. The people that I'm talking to 
have to change. Perhaps the, the, it becomes more emotive the way that you know, I advocate for these children and, and I am quite deliberate about that because if I'm talking to colleagues about what we're going to be doing for a particular operation, that's very different from talking to donors, potential donors, or to um, those in positions of government to be able to influence uh, funding changes for these families because you really need to be you need to be on the front foot. You need to be open about the impact that this is having on the families because often they don't want to say that for themselves individually, but as a collective, we can say that for them. And we can say that through the research we do. And we can also say it when we're in the room with the politicians to be able to advocate for greater resources for these particular families. Yeah. I guess it's that fine balance between being emotive and talking about the families and being people, but also having numbers and values to back up a problem for, I guess, people in government roles and that sort of thing. Is that yeah, fair? I think that they need to, I think that the, the people respond to the human stories, mm. uh, but you're right in that you don't get, I don't think that you'll get anywhere just with, just with an emotive story. You need to be able to have a vision for how you're going to impact on that family and other families like that mm. um, in a meaningful way. How are you going to use the opportunities that you've been given to create greater care, better care for those families? You come across as a very confident person, very together. At least that's how you seem. I'm sure it's all <laughs> smoke and mirrors. Um, but what yeah, happens? As you, know, I'm, as you know, Sim, I'm home this week doing homeschooling with the children. <laughs> uh, I might not be uh, as together as it, uh, that looks. <laughs> um, well, anyway, you do come across as being very together. But what happens when your strategy goes out the window? Can you recall a time where this has happened and how did you adapt and respond to that situation? Oh, absolutely. I think you know, if I reflect on some of the challenges that I and we as a service faced last year, for example, where there was, there was some opposition to some of the changes that we were looking at. And I suppose how I responded to that was initially with the typical stress response yeah. and why is it happening and, you know, why can't others see what I'm trying to do? Yeah. Because I think... At the heart of what I was trying to do was very patient-centred and family-centred. Therefore, it was, you know, there were some frustrations thinking, well, my vision is to improve the condition and the situation for these families. So how could anything that we're trying to move towards that path um, be seen as a negative? But the way that I responded to that was over a period of months, really, um, as this as a particular situation unfolded, was to go back to those supports that I trusted and that's uh, I've got the significant advantage that my uh, wife is also a clinician leader in her own field Um, and so I was able to bounce ideas off her and get perspective and you know allow myself to calm down through that those (laughs) discussions but also um, again went to my mentors and looked to that group of people and as I said before I've been very been very proactive in surrounding myself with great mentorship and sponsorship but particularly in this in this situation mentorship 
So reaching out to those colleagues of mine, both within the institution, but also outside to be able to say, this is what I'm doing. These are the barriers that I'm facing. You know, what am I doing wrong? What, why do you think that I'm meeting this resistance? And some of it was, you know, people being able to say, well, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Which was great. Uh, but also others saying, no, actually, you're on the right path. It's just that it sometimes takes others a little while to, to catch up and recognising that the pace at which some people move is greater than others are willing to or are ready to. And so, and I think that that's also where I think my, my leadership can improve probably yep. um, is looking at ways of how do I bring, how do you effectively bring people along with you who, who perhaps initially don't see the importance of what you're trying to achieve or the need for change in the same way that I do. So I was listening to a podcast that featured um, someone who was who works in a quite senior role at Australia Post, and she was saying that Australia Post is such a loved brand by the even by the people who work there. It's very very beloved. The people there are very loyal, but that would mean whenever she would try to bring about change in a process, people were very resistant to it because this is the way we've always done it. I can imagine in a situation where you're working with children and the Royal Children's Hospital is a very loved environment and, you know, very well respected, that you would get a similar sort of resistance perhaps to change. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that there, I think that the Children's is a wonderful institution, you know, 150 years uh, old now and you know, lots of traditions and lots of remarkable innovation happening, you know, on a daily basis. But some people just have their ability to respond to change is greater or lesser than others. Yeah. I, and I perhaps have always been in a bit of a hurry to enact change, and not just change for change's sake, but, but change that I thought that I think is important, but also recognising those around you perhaps, you know, sometimes don't want to, don't want to change. And also thinking particularly if things have always been done that way. And if you, you know, your Australia Post example is a great one because if somebody comes in and says, well, I think that we can do this differently and you've got a whole collection of people who have worked at that institution and done it that way for a long period of time, then most people's response to that, the, the impetus for change or, the, or the, the, even the discussion around change becomes, well, what you're saying is what we've done previously has been inferior. And I think that the number of people who embrace change proactively is relatively small and and who go out of their way to say, actually, well, that's a really good idea. Let's look at that. And so what I really wanted, you know, in setting up the, the service, part of the discussion was around about the fact that we have all, we have provi- we've all striven to, to, to provide excellent clinical care for these families. But the, 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 my vision for the service wasn't to say we need to do the surgery better. It was to do the coordination of the patient's care better, yeah. to do the psychosocial support of the families better, to do, you know, to bring child life therapy, play therapy in, in a way that um, we haven't used before. And so none of those things were saying that what we were doing before was bad it's just that times change the requirements for families change 
and we can't we can't think that what families were willing to accept 20 or 30 years ago for their yeah. surgical care is the same as what we accept in 2020. It just isn't. Yeah. And when you know that families carry a heavy burden as a result of dealing with a sick child, if there's something you could do to help, then why wouldn't you, I guess? Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, particularly with the conditions that I look after, there was for many years, there was a mentality that these children had their surgery and they were fixed. Yeah. But, you know, one of the one of the most powerful sort of personal and professional interactions that I have had since 2016 and continue to have is with a former patient of the children's uh, by the name of Greg Ryan. And Greg Ryan's an inspirational fellow. He's a survivor uh, of, of an anorectal malformation who was operated on by some of the most talented surgeons the children's has ever seen, but still has had significant lifelong mm sequelae of his condition and he and I'm, I can talk about this openly because he's written a book about it he's set yeah. a foundation around it I sit on the board of um, and Greg has been one of the most incredible advocates for patients and families with anorectal malformations but here he is in his mid-50s still traumatized by these disease this mm. disease that affected him as a small child and it was really through some of the early work that I did looking at quality of life outcomes in the children that I then first got to meet him. We then started talking more about families and the family unit and our work has grown from there. And, and, and again, you know, we're talking about leadership. You know, Greg's leadership is remarkable here. Mm -hmm. And who four years ago, four and a half years ago, essentially had no outlet for his sorrow, uh, for his anxiety um, and depression. And we fast forward to 2020, he has a foundation with a very impressive board. He has, has enabled the topic of anorectal malformations to be discussed in the federal parliament. He's presented all over the world now about his you know, condition and his book. You know, he's presented on international radio. You know, he's, a, he's a true leader in his field now in a way that he wouldn't have ever, ever imagined. And even though he has no formal leadership role per se you know is a is a leader to many people yeah he's a leader to those patients so yeah. yeah that's wonderful to get on you know a bit of a more positive topic you're a pretty positive person I'd, I'd say and you seem to say yes to a lot of things like yes to being on a podcast <laughs> for someone who's never done one before so then what is your strategy to say no how do you say no and um, have you learned from a time where you wanted to say no but didn't? I don't say no very often, <laughs> except to my kids. <laughs> um, but you're right, I, I, I am a very generally a very positive person. Uh, I'm fortunate like that. I think that just happened to be made that way. Yeah. And I think that that it means that I look at the opportunities and, and grasp them and say yes far more often than I say no. Every so often that leads into a situation where I've taken on more than I should have. And I did have a situation last year where I actually had to, I can clearly remember having to pull out of something. It was, it was, you know, it was committed to writing a book chapter. But with everything that was going on with the setting up of the service and work and, and outside work, yeah, it got to the point where I had to say no to that and I felt bad. But in a bizarre way, I felt incredibly relieved. I'd thought about yeah. You know, that, sending that email and making that phone call to a colleague in the States 
for a couple of weeks um, and put it off and put it off and put it off and eventually sort of said, look, I'm terribly sorry for these reasons, I can't. And, and of course, he said, that's fine, completely understand. But I don't, you know, I don't say no. And I think that, that probably when it comes to my, re- my relationships with others and trying to move things forward, I think I do struggle with people that say no more often than not. Mm-hmm. People who f- who look for the the downside of opportunity you know, of the situation, and and it, and I suppose therefore I aim to surround myself with positive people, yeah. not not people who say yes to everything that I say to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't certainly don't want that. The way that I've set up our service. Um, Definitely don't want that, but I but I do I do struggle with people whose immediate response to a situation is to say no. Yeah, it's interesting because you just went to say in the first instance you went to say when people say no to an opportunity you changed it to situation. I think that reflects your positive nature. Yeah, you know, I, I think that the again. I feel incredibly privileged to do the job that I do, both from a clinical position and a research position and a leadership position. And what comes with those, with that luxury and that privilege is is the, in my mind at least, not in many, but not in most people's mind, but but in, in, in my mind, almost uh, imperative to grasp that mm. uh, and to make something of it. And, and I suppose what I what I as I'm getting a bit older and, and hopefully a little wiser, recognizing that not everybody's like that, um, and that's fine. And not getting frustrated by that, but also making sure that you're surrounding is you know, that I'm surrounding myself with positive people. Because when I think about the group that put forward my aims and vision to the to the team in our service recently, it was it was all around about being the most positive that we can be most supportive that we can be mm. um, and and by doing those things by being positive by by supporting and serving each other then we can't help but make our service better yeah which means that we can't help but enhance the care that we provide for the families that we look for and also those families outside our service that are looking to us for leadership that's very I powerful i don't think I, I don't think i really answered your question about how no, to say you did that. No, you did. You did. In a roundabout way, you did. <laughs> so I want to move on to leadership development. And you already touched briefly on the fact that you've received a lot of mentorship and sponsorship, that you actively seek out mentorship, which I think is is wonderful and, and just so smart in terms of developing your style and finding out what style is your own. A lot of people aren't particularly familiar with sponsorship and how that's different from mentorship. So how would you consider that you have been sponsored by someone before? Well, I think that my, I have a wonderful example of sponsorship, um, which has led to where I am today in that my pathway to leaving Sydney and coming to do a PhD in Melbourne and thankfully, you know, having just got married and thankfully with the support of my wife to move down here, came about because I approached a, a colleague of my parents, um, parents are both in the medical field, who had worked with both my mum and dad. Um, so he was a paediatric surgeon, recently returned to Sydney from overseas. And I met with him to talk about 
you know, wanting to do paediatric surgery, which I'd wanted to do for a long time, and what opportunities there were, and and could I come and do research with him? And he was, you know, very happy um, to have that conversation. He put an enormous amount of effort into thinking about before we met um, about what were the opportunities both in Sydney and in uh, other places around Australasia, and then mapped out what he thought that my next three to five years could look like. Well, wow. I stayed in Sydney or if I moved to Melbourne or to Christchurch. And the reason for that was that they, he said, I think that at the moment the best place to go and do research and to set yourself up for a paediatric surgical research career is either with, you know, a, a supervisor in, in Melbourne or a supervisor in, in uh, Christchurch. And I ended up, you know, moving to Melbourne and taking that job uh, with my PhD supervisor, who's, you know, still been a, a wonderful sponsor and mentor. But, you know, that situation, Anthony Dilly, the name of the surgeon up in Sydney, he, he was losing something. He, yeah. was lo- he was losing the opportunity for me to come and, you know, be a, essentially an unpaid researcher working with him. But he saw that the, the better thing for me was to push me towards, you know, two of the, you know, the two probably best known of the surgical, paid surgical researchers in Australasia at the time, because that was what was the right thing for me. And as I said, that, you know, that's 17 years ago now, 18 years ago, and that's set up my uh, PhD, which then enabled me to then move on to the training program and my PhD supervisor then essentially coordinated for me to go overseas and, there, and here I am back in you know, Melbourne for the last five and a half, six years. So that to me, sponsorship is is critical and it's I think it's important for people to, to think about who are mentors, who are sponsors. One person can be both um, and often is, but recognising that there are opportunities that, different people can can afford you um, and and seeking out those people who will um, not not in a mercenary way um, but because you can learn so much from their experiences and they can also help guide you and um, hopefully have made the mistakes for you previously that's so wonderful though that they put your needs before themselves like they want you to do well that's just that does show real leadership that's a real leadership quality very lucky for that yeah so then now that it's I guess becoming more and more your turn to lead the next generation what what do you try to do to help the next generation probably the most exciting aspect of research is the people management and the and nurturing um, I love the I love the academic side I'm fascinated by the different aspects of what we do I love you know bringing the data together um, mm. but almost more to me is the person who's who's brought that data to me um, and what they are doing with that and what I see for them long term and how I can help them long term so I've, I've been and again I've been very fortunate in that my PhD supervisor John Hudson who's professor of pediatric surgery at the children's who's an absolute um, superstar in our field, both from a research perspective, but as well as from an educational and surgical perspective. He's been a wonderful role model in the way that he has supervised students. So when I was in his lab as a PhD student, constantly surrounded by medical students who were coming and doing something from six weeks to a year of research mm-hmm. with him and and seeing how he nurtured 
those trainees, those research trainees. And so that's what I aim to do now with my research team. Again, you know, be it a collection of medical students who are coming to do a six to 12 month um, stint through to honours, masters and PhD students. And even now, now even the, the two postdocs that sit within our service as well, recognising that everybody needs assistance regardless of what stage they're at. Everybody needs help and sometimes uh, assistance with their direction. But to me, being able to, you know, know, I've got two examples at the moment of my my two main PhD students are both aspiring paediatric surgeons, um, had both done previous research projects with me, one as a medical student, uh, one as a, a Master's of Surgical Sciences that I'd helped supervise who've then come back in to do a PhD because they've enjoyed the environment that we've created within our research group. And to see these young women, both women, um, who are far smarter than me um, <laughs> and, and far, you know, far more talented and, you know, what they're capable of at their stage compared to what I was capable of at their age, you know, far you know, far more impressive, which is wonderful. But to, to you know, feel that I've got some potential influence over what they're doing now, what they're going to do next year, but, you know, further forward, 5, 10, 15 years down the track, that's that's so exciting for me to be able to, again, surround myself with really bright, young, questioning students. It's just, it's fantastic. There's a wonderful Lorne Michael, the, um, the genius that started Saturday Night Live, the Canadian comedian, and one of my favourite quotes from him is that if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yes. <laughs> um, to me, that just that's how I want to. When I have my lab meeting, I want to make sure that the people that are that are in that meeting are smarter than me, which is easy, and and bringing their enthusiasm. And I'm just there to support that path for them. It's uh, learning by leading. It's yeah, a wonderful benefit of the job, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I think that we we get to do that at a clinical level, and that's one of the huge advantages of working at a place like the Children's and any large teaching hospital is that we every single year we're getting new trainees coming through who are always at the same stage. So even though I'm ageing, they're, <laughs> they're at the same stage, which is great because they're all coming up to their final exit exam, which means that they're reading the literature they're staying on top of the what's new. They're teaching us. And, again, coming back to my wonderful mentor who's now in France, he's, he's now mid-60s, but his intellectual curiosity and willingness to be corrected if there's something that he thought was in the literature and somebody else is able to show that actually there's a contrary view that is correct, um, that, that's what you aspire to, not ossifying, um, in your thinking and making sure that you're grasping those, again, opportunities that the, this constantly renewed generation of, of trainees and students is bringing to you. I, I definitely agree with that for sure. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, if you talk about leadership at an academic level and one of the things that, and maybe this will, you know, this will be a good thing to come back and play in 10 and 15 and 20 years' time, but... Um, <laughs> But one aspect of scientific authorship, for example, that drives me slightly crazy is seeing senior, and I mean really senior scientists and clinicians who have 
very well-established track records and <laughs> very well-established portfolios and, you know, presence in their field who still insist on being a first or a last author. Yeah. Uh, I just, that, that to me, and to me that, that you talk about ego, that, talk, that, that to me shows a fragility of ego. Yeah. Um, that there's really no excuse for that. Now, it's different if you're, you know, if nature's inviting you to give a review. Sure, sure. Or the leader in your field and you write that review, then good luck to you. I'm never going to be in that situation. But <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, having people who who can't see that they are, that, that their role at, once they get to that point is to promote the people coming up, that to me is, um, again, it doesn't show, it shows a fragility of ego rather than a strength of ego. That's um, one of my pet peeves. That's why I was giggling. I just couldn't help myself. Um, it's brilliant. <laughs> uh, something that you and I have spoken about um, a relative amount is tackling gender bias for women in leadership positions and how much of a battle it is. So it's an issue that I know you're very conscious of and that you actively try to implement actions to help in the area. Was there a particular event that drove you to think like this, provoked you to think like this, or is it something that you've always recognised as being an issue? I think for in part I think you just don't get it. You just don't get why it should be a problem, I feel. Um, maybe that's because you've just mentioned your wife and your mum are both both in the medical profession as well. So maybe that's why you can't see it because if they could do it, I mean, why can't, why doesn't anyone deserve an opportunity, I guess? Well, I've, I think that um, you're right. It, 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 to me, it, it doesn't make sense. Some people's thinking around this and I get it. And, and we're all, we're all guilty of unconscious bias. Um, and I'm, and I constantly remember, remind myself and others that as a middle-class privileged white male that there have been a whole bunch of doors that have been opened to me that I don't even necessarily know were opened and you have to and if and I have to be cognizant of that I don't I don't think that I have to feel guilty about that but at the same time I need to be cognizant of that make sure that that is is that we are breaking down those doors for others. You're right in that I had, you know, grew up in a very um, in a household with a very strong role model as a uh, with my mother. I've also got a very strong role model with my older sister, uh, who's a uh, you know, had a very um, impressive and you know um, interesting professional career as a diplomat. And then I was also very fortunate in that you know, my wife is. Uh, physician and uh, academic and uh, now a leader in our own field and so we've got those you know constantly being reminded of that which is great part of the reason why pediatric surgery is so different from other specialties is that it is uh, approximately 65 70 percent of our current trainees are female and so that is very different from other surgical specialties it's Mm. the most female biased of the specialties but even within pediatric surgery the majority of the leadership roles have still been filled over you know if we were to look for the last 15 20 years across australasia and internationally the bulk of those leadership roles have still been filled by men yeah Um, that's slowly changing uh, which is great, but it's uh, surgical training is you know, it's long, not in ter- not only in times of years, but in terms of hours, etc. And so, trying to balance 
families um, with that is is, yeah. is challenging. But I do, you know, if, if I think about the, if I was to think about the five most talented trainees that I've ever had work with me, four out of five of those are women. Um, and I mean talented both technically, emotionally, from a leadership point of view. So it's our job to make sure that those fantastic women are being given all of the opportunities that the, the men have had. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. <laughs> but it, it is interesting. I know you and I have sat on meetings where this has been the case, but um, it, I, I think a lot of the time people don't realise what they're doing. No, I don't think they do. Yeah. But, uh, but that's not a good enough, I don't think that's enough of an excuse anymore. But it is, I can only imagine how frustrating it must be for people, women particularly, (laughs) but it's not always women, but but mostly to enunciate an idea or a plan in a meeting and have that ignored until somebody else makes the same point. Yeah. And that's, that's a, I can only imagine how frustrating that is, but also it leads, you know, I can imagine that it would then often lead to people not feeling like there's any point pushing forward their opinion, which again means that that whole group is losing out. It's doubly losing out. That's true. That's very true. It's just something we'll just have to slowly tackle. That's all, one by one. (laughs) The last main section I wanted to talk about was leadership and your team. So you appear to have an excellent attitude and don't take yourself too seriously. Have you always been like this and does do you think it helps you leading your team well it's funny because my family would say that I was born 45 or 50 years old so so maybe I'm finally maybe I'm just you know hitting hitting my straps Um, but I do like to have fun I've always liked to have fun and I think that particularly in the work that we do and some of the people that we work with it's very easy to get serious and stodgy yeah um, and so I often find, and particularly in the current environment that we're finding ourselves, where you might have 15 or 20 people on a Zoom meeting or a Teams meeting, I can't but help, you know, try to bring some levity, humour into the situation. And more often than not, that's at my expense. Um, but that's deliberate because um, you need to be able to have fun at work. We spend so much time at work and we... The advantage of, the, I think, the work that you do and the advantage of the work that I do is that we are we're surrounded by passionate people who want to yeah. make a difference, and so it is easy to get caught up in the seriousness of that. And so, therefore, making sure that the the, the, the team around you feels supported, and that they feel important, that they're, you know, to to me, um, you know, it's really important to me that I know what each of my team members do outside work, what what makes them tick, what t- what TV shows they're watching, what their children's names are. You know, those sort of things are, to me, incredibly important. Yeah. Because it just shows that I'm interested in them. Yeah, well, it they're, makes their people. So Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I know that I talk a lot about my, my family. I'm, you know, very proud of, you know, my wife and my children, my extended family. So they, they have to listen to me rabbit on about that. So <laughs> they don't care that I should know what's happening in their lives. But I think that that brings the group together. And that's, and, and that's been so clear in the last six months 
with yeah. everything that's been happening at work. We've had a team because of um, the way that we've the way that we've constructed our service and the restrictions that it, you know that are absolutely essential within the within the hospital. We've had most of our team at home for periods of you know prolonged periods of time, which you know and often with small children, you know, trying to work, trying to care, trying to stay sane. So things like team meetings, you know, that we've set up a you know social catch up once a week that you know not everybody attends, but it's there and, and people can join as they see fit, um, so that we can laugh at the end of the week about all of the stuff that's happened, you know, commiserate when the numbers, you know, of cases aren't going down going as quickly as we'd like yeah. them to. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's really important to be able to bring the group together, and I and I do look at some of. You know, you know, I'm sure you you probably do as well. You look at some of the absolute superstar academic superstars that we have either been involved with or seen on the periphery, and I and I realise that I'm not necessarily going to achieve what some of those people are going to achieve. Mm. You know, in terms of publication success or you know fellowships of this and fellowships of that. But I also look at the majority of those people and think that they that they've got to that point from a combination of being smarter than me, being more self-focused than me, but at the end, once they finish doing what they're doing, they don't necessarily will have the same collection of, you know, wonderful team members scattered all over the place uh, that have um, that are, that they've still got a connection to. Have, I'm sure all those people, lots and lots of people, will have gone through their labs. Lots of people will have them on papers with them and be affiliated with them, but they won't necessarily have that human connection yeah. to to them uh, in the same way that is important to me. Yeah, that's wonderful. I like that. So, based on that theme, then, is there something that someone in your team? or your team in general have taught you um, that's really affected your leadership style? In my current team? Sure. Well, I think what I've learned from, what I've, what I've learned from my team, which has been great, and particularly in the last six months with COVID, is that you cannot take for granted what people's situations are and how that means they're going to respond to a certain predicament. And what I mean by that is that, you know, within my group I've got, uh, and it's almost exclusively uh, women in the service, from sur- surgeons through to administrative staff, nursing, etc. cetera. Uh, we've got, some have got adult children, some have got no children, some have got preschool children, some have got school children. And, and I would have thought if going into this that the group that would be, you know, the most stressed would probably be those with school-aged children who are trying to do their best from home whilst trying to, you know, homeschool their kids or remote do remote learning with their children. But actually some of the significant stresses have been some of my team who've got adult children who can't see them, yeah. who are used to being able to see them, um, or uh, some of the team who've got no children who have been in a situation where that critical human bond that we all have, they haven't been able to exercise that and so I think that's what I've you know from a leadership point of view what I've learned over the last six months is is really saying that you can't take for granted 
where your team members and where your colleagues are. And the more that we know about each other, you know, the members of the team that I work with, the better that I'm going to be at being able to respond in a, in a fashion that is um, that's helpful. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. also recognising, I think, as a leader, when to step out from the group. Um, yeah, this happened recently that we've got a WhatsApp group. Um, we've got a WhatsApp group uh, with the whole service and then it became clear that there was a WhatsApp group that the surgeons weren't involved in. Um, <laughs> I had a great laugh about and teased them mercilessly that how dare they exclude me, but at the same time recognising they need to they, they need to have that group because we've all worked with people who you you know the the I suppose the more senior you become the older you become the less cool you become, um, the, you know you don't want to be the person who turns up and all of a sudden the dynamic of that group changes because you've arrived. <laughs> and the, and the conversation becomes focused on you. Um, yeah, so recognising when to, to you know, remove yourself from that environment is also important. Yeah, that's a very good point. We have the same thing. We've got uh, Slack. We use Slack for communication at, um, at work. And there are channels or we've encouraged the students to have channels where we're not involved so that they can talk to each other. It's so important. Okay, so I'm going to close with three questions for each podcast. This is based on the fact I find um, gratitude and learning is very important for development. So um, that's where these three questions are centred and they just need a quick response. The first is, who have you learnt the most from about leadership? The two mentors that I've mentioned previously, Eva Lurie, who's in France, and uh, Kiki Moati in Christchurch. What are you grateful for um, that being a leader has provided? It has given me just wonderful opportunities to meet talented young trainees and researchers. Wonderful. And um, what would you want to achieve to feel like a successful leader? I'd like to think that in the next five, ten years to, to see not only the members of my current team flourish their own leadership roles, become experts in their fields, but also that group of PhD students and surgical trainees, you know, move into positions where they are influencing our field. Wonderful. Associate Professor Sebastian King, Baz, thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to today's interview on The Lead Candidate. I'd love to hear your suggestions on topics you'd like to discuss or people you'd like me to interview. So if you've got suggestions, contact me on Twitter. Our handle is at leadcandidate, all one word. Look forward to hearing from you and thanks again. Thanks again.